As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. I'm so excited about today's show. Today we have David Cox. He is the director of the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab, which is part of IBM Research. Before that, he spent 11 years teaching at Harvard, interestingly, in the life sciences. He holds an AB degree from Harvard in uh, biology and psychology, and he holds a PhD in neuroscience from MIT. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. I always like to start with kind of my Rorschach question, which is what is intelligence and why is artificial intelligence artificial? And you're a neuroscientist and a psychologist and a biologist. So how do you think of intelligence? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I, I think... I th- I think we don't necessarily need to have just one definition. I think people get hung up on on the words. Um, but you know, at, at the end of the day, we, you know, what makes what makes us intelligent? What makes other organisms on this planet intelligent? It's really the ability to uh, absorb information about the environment, to build models of what's going to happen next, to predict, and then to make actions. Uh, you know, that that help help achieve whatever goal you're trying to achieve. And you know, when you look at it that way, that's a pretty darn broad definition, right? And some people are purists and they want to say, you know, this is AI, but this is, you know, this other thing is just, you know, statistics or regression or if then else loops. And, you know, at the end of the day, really what we're, what we're about is we're, we're trying to make machines that can make decisions the way we do. And, and sometimes our decisions are, are very complicated. Sometimes our decisions are less complicated, but it really is about you know, how do we how do we model the world? How do we how do we take actions that, that really drive us forward? Um, and, you know, it, it's funny, you know, the AI word, too. I, I think I'm a recovering academic, as, as you said. So I was at Harvard for many years. And, you know, I think we were as a field, we were really uncomfortable with the term AI. So we desperately wanted to call it anything. You know, 2017 and, and before, you know, we wanted to call it machine learning or we wanted to call it deep learning, you know, being more specific. But, you know, in 2018, for whatever reason, you know, we all kind of just gave up and we just embraced this term AI. And, and you know, in some ways, I think it's, it's healthy. Um, but when I joined IBM, I was actually really pleasantly surprised by some uh, framing uh, that the company had done. And so, so IBM does this thing called the Global Technology Outlook, a GTO, which happens every year. And the company tries to collectively figure out, you know, research plays a very big part of this. We try and figure out, you know, what is, what's the future look like? And they came up with this framing that I really like for AI. And they did something extremely simple. They just put some adjectives in front of AI. And I think it clarifies the debate a lot. So basically what we have today, you know, deep learning, machine learning, you know, tremendously powerful technologies are going to disrupt a lot of things. Uh, they, they, we call those narrow AI. And, you know, I, I think that narrow framing really calls attention to the ways in which, you know, even if it's powerful, it's fundamentally limited. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have, you know, general AI, you know, this is a term that's been around for a long time, this idea of, you know, systems that can decide what they want to do for themselves that are broadly autonomous. And, and, you know, that's fine. And and those are really interesting discussions to have. But we're really not there as a field yet. 
And then in the middle, and I think this is really where the the sort of the interesting stroke is, uh, there's this notion we have a broad AI. And I think that's really where the stakes are today. You know, how do we have systems that are you know, able to go beyond what we have that's narrow without necessarily getting hung up on all these notions of what general intelligence might might be. So things like having systems that are that are interpretable, having things systems that can work with different kinds of data, that can integrate knowledge from other sources. That sort of domain of broad uh, AI, broad intelligence, is really what the lab I lead is all about. So there's a lot in there. Um, and, and I agree with you. I'm not really that interested in on the kind of the low end, what, what's the lowest bar for AI. I guess the, what makes the question interesting to me is, um, is really the mechanism by which we are intelligent, whatever that is. And does that intelligence require a mechanistic reductionist view of the world? In other words, is that something that you believe we're going to be able to duplicate either in terms of its function? Are we going to be able, do you believe, to be able to build machines that are as versatile as a, as a human in intelligence and creative and, and have emotions and all of the rest? Or is that an open question? I, I have no doubt that we're going to eventually, you know, as, as a human race, be able to figure out how to build intelligent systems that are just as intelligent as we are. Um, you know, and, and I, I think some of these things, you know, we, we tend to like to think about how we're different from other kinds of intelligences on Earth. So we do things like, you know, there was a period of time where we, we wanted to distinguish ourselves from the animals. And, and you know, we, we thought, you know, reason, you know, the ability to reason and do things like mathematics and abstract logic was what was uniquely human about us. Um, and then, you know, computers came along and all of a sudden computers can actually do some of those, those things better than we can even, you know, arithmetic and you know, solving complex, uh, you know, logic problems or math problems. Um, so then we move towards thinking, well, maybe it's emotion. Maybe emotion is what makes us sort of uniquely human and, and special. You know, there's a kind of narcissism, I think, to, to our own view, which is, which is understandable and justifiable. Like, how are we special in this world? But I think in many ways, you know... Um, you know, I think we're going to end up having systems that do have something like emotion. You know, even, you know, you look at reinforcement learning, uh, you know, you, you, those systems have a notion of reward. And, you know, I don't think it's such a far reach to think, you know, maybe we'll even in, you know, sci-fi world have machines that have kind of, you know, senses of uh, pleasure and, you know, hopes and ambitions and things like that. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, our, our brains are computers. I, I think that's, sometimes that's a controversial statement, but uh, it's one that I think, uh, is is well grounded. Uh, it's a very sophisticated computer. It happens to be made out of biological materials, um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's you know a, a tremendously efficient, tremendously powerful, tremendously parallel, you know, nanoscale biological computer. Nano, you know, sort of like biological nanotechnology. Um, and you know, it, it, to the extent that it is a computer, and we you know, to the, we, to the extent we can agree on that, um, there there really are you know, computer science gives us sort of equivalent. You know, we can uh, we can build a computer with different hardware. We don't have to emulate the hardware. We don't have to slavishly copy the brain. But but it is sort of a given that we'll eventually be able to do everything the brain does uh, in a computer. Now, of course, all that's all you know farther off. I think you know like that. That's not those aren't the the stakes that we're those aren't the battlefronts that we're working on today. Um, but I think the the sky's the limit really in terms of where our, where AI can go. You mentioned narrow and general AI with. And this, and this classification you're putting in between them is broad. And I'm of an opinion, 
and I'm curious what you think, that at least with regards to narrow in general, they are not, uh, they're not on a continuum. They're actually unrelated technologies. Would you agree with that or not? Would you say like narrow gets a little better and then a little better, a little better, a little better, a little better, and then ta-da, one day it, it can compose Hamilton? Or, uh, or do you think that they may be completely unrelated? That this model of, hey, let's take a lot of data about the past and let's study it very carefully to learn to do one thing is very different than whatever general intelligence is going to be. Yeah, you know, there's, there's sort of this idea that if, if you want to go to the moon, you know, one way to go to the moon to get closer to the moon is to climb, climb a, a mountain. Right, exactly. Right, yeah. right. And, and you'll get closer, uh, but you're, you're not on the right path, right? And right. maybe you'd be better off building a little model rocket and maybe it won't go as high as the tree or as high as the mountain, but it'll get you where you need to go. I, I do think there is a strong flavor of that with today's AI. And today's AI, you know, if, if, we're, if we're playing about things, is, is deep learning. Um, so so this, this model, what's really been successful in deep learning is supervised, you know, supervised learning, right? So we just train, train a model to do every part of seeing based on, you know, classifying objects and you classify a lot, you know, many, many, many images, you have lots of training data, and you build a statistical model um, you know, and, and that, that's, 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 that's everything the, the model has ever seen. It has to learn from those images and from that task. And, and we're, we're starting to see that actually the solutions you get, you know, again, they're, they're tremendously useful, but they do have a little bit of that quality of climbing a tree or climbing a mountain, right? They, there's, a, there's a bunch of recent work that's suggesting that you can do, uh, that basically they're looking at texture. So a lot of you know solution for in computer vision is really just looking kind of at the rough texture. There's also some wonderful examples where you take a, a, a captioning system, a system that can take an image and produce a caption, and uh, you know can produce wonderful captions in cases where the images look like the ones it was trained on. But you show it anything just a little bit weird, like an airplane you know about to crash, or uh, you know a family fleeing their home on a flooding beach. And it'll produce things like an airplane is on the tarmac at an airport or, uh, you know, a family is standing on a beach. You know, it's like they kind of missed the point, right? It, like it, it was able to do something because it learned correlations between, you know, the, the, the inputs it was given and the outputs that we asked it for. But it didn't have a deep understanding. And I think that's the crux of, of what you're getting at. And I, I agree. Um, I, I, agree, I agree at least in part. So I think the, so, Yeah, go ahead. So would broad, the way you're thinking of it, it sounds to me, just from the few words you've said, like it's an incremental improvement over narrow. It's not a junior version of, of a general AI. Would, would you agree with that? You're basically taking techniques we have and just doing them bigger and more expansively and smarter and better, but, or is that not the case? No, so when we think about broad AI, we really are thinking about how do we you know, a little bit press the reset button, you know, don't, don't throw away things that work. I, you know, deep learning is a set of tools, which is tremendously powerful. Uh, and, and we'd be kind of foolish to throw them away. Um, but when we think about broad AI, what we're really getting at is how do we start to make contact with that deep structure in the world? And also things like common sense, you know, like we have all kinds of common sense. When I look at a scene, I look at the desk in front of me, it's, I, I didn't learn to, to do tasks that have to do with the desk in front of me 
by lots and lots of, you know, lots and lots of labeled examples or even, you know, many, many trials in a reinforcement learning kind of setup. I, I, I know things about the world, simple things, things we take for granted. Like I know that my desk is probably, you know, made of wood and I know that wood is a solid and I, I know that you can't pass, you know, solids can't pass through other solids. And I know that, you know, it's probably flat. And if I put my hand out, I, I would be able to orient it in a position that would be appropriate to sort of just hover above the So there's all these affordances and all this like super simple common sense stuff that you don't get when you just do brute force statistical learning. So when we think about broad AI, you know, we're really thinking about how do we infuse that, that knowledge, that understanding, and that common sense um, and one area that we're that we're excited about and that we're working on here at the MIT IBM lab is this idea of neurosymbolic hybrids. So again, this is in the spirit of, you know, don't throw away neural networks. They're, they're wonderful at extracting certain kinds of statistical structure from the world. Um, you know, convolutional neural network does wonderful job of, 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 of extracting information from an image. And uh, LSTMs and recurrent neural networks do a wonderful job of extracting structure from natural language. But building in symbolic systems, you know, as, as sort of first-class citizens in a hybrid system that combines those all together. Uh, so, so some of the work we're doing now is building systems where we use neural networks to extract structure from, from these sort of noisy, messy inputs of vision and these different modalities, but then actually having, you know, symbolic AI systems. You know, like symbolic AI systems have been around basically contemporaneous with neural networks. They've been, they've been sort of uh, in, the, in the wings all this time. You know, neural networks, deep learning is in many way, you know, everyone knows is, is sort of a, you know, a rebrand of, of the neural networks from the 1980s uh, that are suddenly powerful again, uh, powerful for the first time because we have enough data and we have enough compute. I think in many ways, a lot of the, the symbolic ideas, you know, sort of logical operations, planning, things like that, uh, they're also very powerful techniques, but but they haven't really been able to shine yet, partly because they've been waiting uh, for something, just the way that neural networks were waiting for uh, for compute and, and data to come along. I think in many ways, some of these symbolic techniques have been waiting for neural networks to come along, because neural networks can kind of bridge that, bridge from the sort of the messiness of the signals coming in to this sort of symbolic regime where we can start to actually work. So one of the things we're really excited about is, is, is building these these systems that can kind of bridge across that gap. So I want to come, I'm, I'm still playing catch up to all the things you said earlier, and I want to set something up for you and get your reaction to it. And it's all going to be based on this statement that brains are computers. But let me, let me set up a different maybe uh, way to phrase the question. You know, you're right that people have all along said there's something different about humans. And uh, Stephen Wolfram was on the show and he said, you know, we always set a bar and then computers go past it. Well, first the animal kingdom goes past it. You know, we are the only ones that use tools and Jane Goodall said chimps use tools and then, you know, we're the only ones that, uh, all, all of these things. And then computers would never be able to play chess, computers would never, and then eventually they do. And, and people who tell that story say, ergo, there's nothing special about us. And yet, I, th I think that that kind of misses what the question is trying to ask. I think people have an intuitive sense that there's something different about us, and they're trying to grasp what that is. They're trying to wrap their head around it. 
you say brains are computers, but that seems to me to be a conclusion drawn only from an absence, as it were, of alternatives. Like, and, and I would say it this way, we have brains that we don't understand. Like, there's a nematode worm, dude's got 302 neurons in his brain, and people have spent 20 years trying to model that in a, you know, to make a virtual nematode worm, the Open Worm Project, and they don't even know if that's possible. So we don't even know, like a neuron may, be as compli- may, may have operations that occur down at the Planck scale for all we know, and you would know that better than, than anybody. I'm sure you know all about the nematode worm and, and all that. So we have these brains, we don't know how dots are encoded, how they're retrieved, any of that. But then, and wait, there's more. We have minds, and minds are all of these things that the brain does that seems to be beyond its reach. You know, your liver doesn't have a sense of humor, your stomach isn't emotional, and yet somehow your brain does these things. You have a mind. And then finally, you know, the big one is we're conscious. We experience the world. We don't just measure temperature. We feel warmth. And that's something that it's the last great scientific question. We don't even know how to ask scientifically or what the answer would look scientifically. So I take all of that to say we have brains we don't understand that give rise to minds we don't understand that somehow can experience the universe as opposed to sense it. Ergo, we're computers. And I find that ergo to be such a logical like disconnect from everything below it. And it seems to me people who say brains are computers say, well, what else could they be? So given all of that mystery about how we're able to do what we're able to do, whatever that is, how can you say with such confidence, like as a statement, brains are computers and and that's all they are? How do you justify that? Good, 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 good. Yeah. So I I, I agree, actually. Um, I agree with everything you said. And when, when we say that brains are computers, uh, I think the, the disconnect there is that that's actually a really weak statement. That that doesn't that doesn't constrain, that doesn't tell us what to do, right? That doesn't tell us what to do at all. <laughs> you know, that's, it's just to say, you know, at some level, what we're saying is there's, uh, you know, in, you know, many times when we say that, what we're really saying is this is a statement of materialism. Like it's, you know, we don't believe there's anything outside of you know there, there doesn't need to be any magic dust um you know, but, beyond but to interrupt there everyone that i had this conversation with always uses the word magic as if that's the only other thing you can either be a scientific rationalist with a reductionist view of the universe or you can believe in magic it's like those are your two choices and i don't know that that's true i don't know that you can't say intelligence as we have it, is a physical property, and yeah, it's it's governed by the laws of physics. But it may be irre, irre, it, we may not be able to reproduce its effects in any form in a fab. And yeah, I don't know that, that that is somehow. I'm I'm now you know going back to the dark ages and and looking at chicken entrails all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree, and you know, and to be, and to be fair too, like there, there are people, you know, smart people who have made the case that there's, you know, other kinds of, you know, scientific magic. Like there are people who claim that the brain is quantum. I, I have Ben Rose and and yeah. his mm-hmm. exactly. I, I happen to think that's that's outlandish and probably and almost certainly not true. But, um, but it, you know, it, it doesn't sort of shift the shift the ground. You know, I, I think there's there's it, you, you're right. Um, so so there's a piece of it which I think is. Uh, at some level, it, it's reductionist, but it, it's it, it, the ta- the 
the, the, the claim is so limited that I think we could probably agree on it, which is, is to simply say, you know, the, the brain is a, the, the mind is a product of the brain. You know, there's no, there's no um, magic. And, and I think we can all agree that, you know, that, well, some of us will agree that, uh, that there's enough complexity in what the brain does and how the brain is built. You know, there's, there's plenty of headroom to, to have, you know, see, you know, these emergent properties like intelligence, like subjective experience, like consciousness, um, you know, and, and, you know, in some ways, you know, it, it's a, it's a, if we, if we agree on, you know, sort of scientific, Materialism. There could be things we don't know about, but you know, from where we're sitting right now, it looks it looks to me at least like there's enough complexity there to account for it. Now, I think what you're saying, which I also agree with, is there's no guarantee that we could ever pretend, we could ever understand that, right? Like it may just be so complex um, that just simply saying like, hey, it has a physical basis, um, and there's no there's no supernatural component to it. Um, you know, that, but my that early just... question to you was, are we going to build machines as versatile as humans? And you said there's no question. Yeah, yeah. So, so for me, uh, so that so right. So this is great. So for me, my my guess is that we will. Um, so so there, there's you know an assertion there with uh, you know there, there, that's me you know uh, you know putting my thumb up in the air and and testing the winds and, and making a judgment about whether we'll get there or not. I, I don't think there's any hard guarantee. Even if we accept the brain is computer, even if we accept that everything is material, even if we accept that it doesn't require any physics that we don't you know basically you know know about, right? Uh, if, you know, even even if we accepted that you know that it, that it quantum was important, you know, I, I think we're on our way to getting, you know, to, to harness quantum and understand it as well. Uh, and that's certainly something that IBM, you know, plays a fair bit in as well. And, and it's making, we're making progress. But I think that, you know, the question of, uh, I think there's kind of two questions, which, which end up being much more like, um, you know, making value judgments or, or making guesses, like, will we be able to understand it? And, and my guess is, yeah, I, th- I think we're going to be able to get there. I don't think there's any barrier that's going to prevent us from getting there. And then the second question is, how long would it will it take? And and that's the place where I think you know you can ask scientists if questions, and you know they aren't always going to be right, but they'll they'll uh, they'll be more right than if you ask them when questions, because I think it's very hard to predict when we can get a handle on some of these things. And I, I think you know we're an interesting inflection point right now in AI, where we've made tremendous progress uh, very quickly you know, like five, six years, we went from things that when I was in grad school, I wasn't sure we were ever going to be able to address. And all of a sudden, you know, we have these technologies. Um, you know, there's, there's an open question whether the, the party keeps going or whether, you know, we, we flatten off again and, you know, and, and we, progress becomes much, much slower. Uh, and then, you know, we have to wait till the next sort of advance. Uh, so, so I think those things are anybody's guess. But m- my guess is, that we're we're gonna we're gonna solve these problems. We're gonna build systems that are that are intelligent, uh, you know, and potentially even as intelligent as us. And you know that might even happen in our lifetimes. Uh, in my life, but it would probably be better if we didn't, right? Because if we build things that intelligent, they invariably, presumably, might have subjective experience. They might feel pain, and we would actually never know, right? Philosophy doesn't even acknowledge that you know I exist to you, uh, and that all of a sudden. If if they become if they if they become entities that can feel pain, then you can no longer have them plunge your toilet, right? I mean, yeah. you no longer throw them on the heap when they're dying. And so, do you think? And and you know, it's taken us a long time to get in the '90s that in this country were still trained that 
animals can't feel pain. That they, it was just you know a reaction that, just like if you poke up an amoeba, it'll recoil, but you don't think the amoeba feels the pain, and that's what was. And so one wonders if we have sy simple systems, if it is as straightforward as as I seem to be thinking you're saying that we have simple systems now that could feel some very simple form of of pain and suffering. Yeah, well, so, and I think that's why this distinction between broad AI and general AI is actually really helpful. Well, that's why, right, right. That's why I was asking you, are you just making kind of a better clockwork? You know, it's still, you wind the clock and it, it unwinds, and or are you building something that could potentially be the first steps of something that could experience something? Well, yeah, so, I mean, I, I mean to be clear, nobody, nobody here at IBM, nobody at MIT, I, I would say no, basically nobody today is credibly working on anything like a system that could feel pain or pleasure or anything. I mean, that, that's just sort of not what people are, it's not even what the, what the, the battle lines kind of are. It's, well, no, it would, be, it would be that it comes about accidentally. Like, does a tree feel pain? You know, it's like, how would we know? And we share half our DNA with them. So how would we, how would we know if, if a system we built got enough complexity that it had this emergent property that it could experience? How would yeah. we know? And then philosophically, we can't, we can't know for sure that, you know, the people around us are conscious. Right, right, right. Objective experiences that we do. I, th I think that the key thing, though, is just that, you know, like, the, the, these, are, these are great philosophical discussions, but we're, we're just so far from that. Like, the systems we're building are very simple. I think what we're, what we're aiming for, you know, what our goal really is, it, it's not to build, you know, a marginally better, um, you know, uh, you know, <coughs> learning system. It, it's, uh, but it's also, it's also not to build something that has subjective experience or anything like that. We're really trying to say, how can we get more of the real structure in data? Because uh -huh. many of the many of the problems we want to solve, and these are hard problems, they're important problems for humanity to solve. Like, how do we build systems that can, you know, start to get a little bit of that logical reasoning? to start to get a little bit of that, you know, that, that common sense knowledge that I mentioned earlier. Right. Kinds of things. That's really important for us to get so we can solve these problems. And that's, I think, I think that's secondary to, you know, will we have systems that can, you know, experience, you know, have subjective experience and things like that. But in all fairness, you did just say it could happen in our lifetime. I, I think it could. I think it yeah. could. I mean, I mean you know, it, it, so and it one of the things... So it isn't premature to even think about these things now. I, I don't think it is. And, okay. you know, I, I think, I think though, what, one thing I would say is, you know, it, it's, it's absolutely, I mean, philosophers can, are, and should be thinking about these kinds of issues. I, I think, though, in terms of the sort of broader public debate on these issues, I think For there sure. are a, lot of, a sure. lot of ethical issues we should address before that. Absolutely. Because, Privacy yeah. and, I mean, I, and, uh, explainability, and, and we can certainly launch into all of those if, if you're curious. You're just a unique dude. Like, you're a neuroscientist. You have a PhD in neuroscience from MIT. Like if anybody's at the forefront of thinking about this, I would expect, you know, it, it would, it would be, it would be, you know, somebody like you who, who kind of has a foot in two worlds, this world yeah. of biology and this world of, of, of whatever we're going to call it. So I'm almost done with, with, with all of this. And I do, I'm, I'm so excited to talk about what you're doing because it, it'll be the real stuff. But, um, I only have two more questions to ask you along these lines. The first is this huge disconnect that when I have people on the show, and I've had 100, and I ask, um, are people machines? And, and really, I'm just asking that mechanistic 
question a, a, a more direct way. All of them, with the exception of four, say yes. Of course, we're machines. Of course. When I put that question on my website to the general public, only 15% of people say yes. 85% of people say no. And I think if you were to drill down, uh, they would say simply, well, computers don't have souls. Or they would appeal to something um, that is uh, beyond what, what science can, can measure and, and deal with. And, and so I personally see this huge disconnect with the group of people who work on these technologies who have this view that people are machines and then this whole world that doesn't believe that, but they don't really know that that's the underlying assumption. They would all sleep better at night. Like if Elon is worried about AI, general AI, he's worried about it because he thinks people are machines and therefore someday we'll build a mechanical person. And then 18 months later, it'll be twice as smart. 18 months later, it'll be twice as smart and ad infinitum. If people knew that like the underlying assumption of that was people are just machines, solely machines, not just solely machines, they would, uh, they would feel better. Do you think this disconnect, that this kind of like intellectual disconnect I'm talking about is a real thing? And do you think it matters or are, are you of no opinion about it? I, I, I think absolutely that disconnect matters. There's a big disconnect. I, I think there are disconnects across the spectrum of science and society, right? There's a lot of things that scientists believe um, because, you know, they're, they're in contact with, with you know, they're, they're doing that day to day. Uh, whereas the public, you know, like, you know, if, if you aren't exposed to that, you know, you have, you have intuitions and, you know, there's, there's lots of good psychology and social science that says, you know, we, we operate a lot by intuition, you know, having, having been a neuroscientist in, in my past and, you know, putting electrodes in brains and, you know, measuring the activity of neurons, uh, you're in the business of studying the machine, right? Like you, you can, you can make the machine do different things. You can, you know, see how it's working. It, there's a very engineering mindset that and the neuroscience takes to to understanding the brain. The one thing I think the the public also doesn't understand is that science isn't out to try and take everything, right? Like it's not like not like all the territory has to be science. It's not like all the territory can be science. Like you you, you asked the question about consciousness. Um, I don't know that we have the ability to ask scientific questions about. Uh, subjective experience like it's just if you can't frame things in such a way that they're falsifiable you know this is sort of the Karl Popper view of science then you know they're not science and that's not to say they're wrong it's not to say they aren't important it's just to say that science isn't the tool to 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 get at those so I think there's a sense in which people when they say when they hear the words we're just machines they think that we're making like almost like a pejorative statement about the quality of, of the human experience. And that's, that's not, that's not true. Uh, you know, like we can be wonderfully complex, beautiful machines and we can have, you know, all of the depth of human emotion and, you know, all, all of the literature that, that can be beautiful, right? Like, there, there isn't anything that's incompatible between, having, you know, us being machines and, and, you know, having it be a machine that we could in principle understand. We don't understand it. We're very far from understanding it, but in principle, uh, we can, we can chip away at what we don't understand. That's not incompatible with the idea that we can, you know, we can experience beauty. We can see a sunset we can, we can, you know, we can have that pleasure and that experience of the aesthetics of that sunset. Those things aren't incompatible. And I think that's sometimes what's tied up 
in this public sort of rejection of the idea that we could possibly be machines. Because I think the, the, the feeling is, how could we be possibly be machines uh, when, you know, I can hear the voice of my daughter, you know, and, and feel, feel, feel happiness. So they, you know, those things to a scientist aren't incompatible. And, it, and there's an extra layer of beauty, I would say, as well, as we understand how intelligence works. Um, you know, that there's just tremendous complexity, both in the brain and, and also in already the artificial intelligence systems we're building. And understanding that, you know, has a has an aesthetic beauty. Mathematics has an aesthetic beauty to it. Um, so, I, so I think that's part of where the disconnect comes. Uh, I don't know how to resolve that disconnect other than just to constantly be in dialogue, you know, with, with, with the public, with government, uh, with policymakers, so that they understand what the technology is, so they, they know... Um, you know what to what to be worried about, and what not to be worried about. Um, and and I think you know your show, other shows, you know, like uh, these. The, there's it's clearly a sign that that the public is interested. Uh, so I think it's incumbent upon us then to meet that meet that interest as as much as we can. And and you know w- we try. Uh, and certainly the the academic community, uh, and you know and businesses as well do our best to communicate to the public. But I think it's something we can always do more of. So last question along these lines is, do you, how, when I sit down and try to list out people who are actually working on general intelligence, because, you know, 99.9% of the money that flows into it just wants to solve a problem, right? Just wants your coffee to taste good or, or whatever it is that it's trying to do. When I list people that I think are working on general intelligence, I come up with like half a dozen. Would, do, you, do you think like that the amount of resources allocated to that problem is as tiny as I suspect it is, or you would be privy to more information. Do you think there are, you know, groups of people that are sitting around thinking, thinking that? Well, I mean, I I think, I think the question is which part of general intelligence are, are there people who are working on understanding natural general intelligence? Absolutely. You know, that's, that's the fields of psychology and to a lesser extent neuroscience. I think neuroscience uh, has a certain kind of humility to it as a field, but they're, they, you know, people accuse neuroscientists of being reductionist, but um, they're, they're really kind of staying in their swim lane and asking questions they know how to ask, which I, which I think is good. Um, In terms of, artificial general intelligence. Uh, again, you know, I, I, think, I think the reason that we're not having, uh, there isn't as much research about that, partly because it's, it, maybe it's, it's in many ways too early. Um, I think a lot of people are looking at it and saying, look, we, we don't even understand how the narrow things we build work, right? Like, you know, uh, you know neural networks, um, it's safe to say we don't really fully understand how the things we built work. Uh, and that leads to all kinds of confusion, you know, like adversarial examples. Uh, so we can hack neural networks. Um, and, and that's, that's a vulnerability that comes from the fact that we fundamentally don't fully understand what we've built. Um, so, so that's, that's one side of it. It's, it's just too early. We don't even understand the simple things we've built. So there's a lot of work to go. And then the other, the other side of it is, you know, I think one of the reasons why there aren't as many people working on general intelligence um, and you've alluded to this already. Is like I'm not sure that's necessarily a desirable thing in the in the in the grandest version of those goals, right? Like, um, you know, I don't I don't know that we want to go and ask questions about you know should we build a system that can feel sad, um, 
like you know or feel pain or or feel suffering uh, you know I, I like it, it it might be a it might be an interesting intellectual exercise to think about whether such a thing could be built but i certainly don't want to be building that and and i th- i think most of the people uh who who i work with and and who i interact with uh are much more pragmatic about building technologies that help humanity right so how do we and again this is where i think this broad versus general divide is is helpful because there's plenty of room for us to improve intelligence artificial intelligence in this sort of broad range where we're, we're not trying to build systems that are conscious we're not we're, we're we're not trying to build something that has these emergent properties we're just trying to endow those parts that we're good at so that we can free up humans from them and so we can do we can go beyond what we can do and, and again solve hard problems that help humanity so Thank you for all of that, and uh, I learned a lot, and I appreciate you being so patient with uh, with my questions. I now would love to shift the conversation to, you're the director of the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab at IBM Research. Tell me, that's a lot, tell me about that partnership. What is different about the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab that is kind of new or innovative? Yeah, so, um, you know, industry and academia have always had connections to each other. You know, industries always funded academic research, for instance. And, you know, when I was an academic, you know, we had lots of funding from, uh, from industrial sources and, 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 it, and it was good. And I think that's, I think that's healthy. Um, the thing is, in today's landscape with, with AI, um, that interaction between the industry and academia is, is sort of uh, a little bit fraught. Uh, so one thing that's happened, I think, is unique in the history of academia is the extent to which industry is is basically poaching people out of academia, right? It's like the whole, um, you know, whole departments, you know, Uber, for instance, uh, funded a bunch of pilot projects with Carnegie Mellon. Mellon, And then they liked those projects. Yeah. And then then they liked those projects so much that they sort of scooped up the entire department on mass and moved them a few blocks down the street and dropped them down and said, okay, now you're Uber Pittsburgh. And and Carnegie Mellon sort of was looking around saying, you know, what just happened? Our, Our department got hollowed out. So, uh, there's this, there's this, there's this flux of people, out of academia, and you know, I, I would argue that that's destroying something that's distinctive about about uh, about academia. Like a, a little bit, you know, sort of eating the seed corn, or um, you know, uh, you know, killing the golden goose, whatever you want to, uh, whichever metaphor you want to use. Um, so we were looking at IBM for: Are there ways we can have embrace academia, support academia, uh, and and really get something out of it? Um, that, that would really drive real impact. You know, the other mo- mode of interaction that academia and industry often has is simply that industry will fund academic research. So, uh, when, for instance, when I was at Harvard, you know, Google would give us some money or, or other companies. And um, typically it was, it was, it was not a, a large amount of money. And, and we'd sort of say thank you and we'd go off and do whatever we're going to do. And really what they were doing in, in many ways was sort of buying an option on hiring our students out from under us. And, and we all understood that and it was fine and it was good. But they weren't really extracting, you know, real value out of that collaboration, uh, and, and and as a result, it was also kind of it always tended to be kind of smaller. So when IBM looked uh, at okay, how are we going to arrange our academic strategy? Um, there's a, a brand new idea, and oh, not a brand new idea, but a, a new idea, a different idea, which was could we form a lab that really lets academia be academia that we can support them, but we really want it to be deeply collaborative. So the way our model works is, so the lab was founded, uh, it, was, it was announced a little bit over a year ago, a quarter, almost a quarter billion dollar investment over 10 years. 
uh, to form a joint lab. So the way we work is that all of our projects are actually collaborations. So every project is jointly conceived and jointly executed by IBM researchers and MIT faculty. And I should say IBM Research, we're, we're a 5,000-person, uh, give or take, uh, research organization. So we're the size of a, of a medium-sized university. And, uh, and we can, we're meeting together. We're, we're sort of asking, uh, what's, what's the next sort of, what's the next thing that will move the needle and, and in AI? And we, we want to do that jointly together with our MIT colleagues. And we're, we're structured in such a way that we make all of our decisions together. So uh, I'm the director on the IBM side of the lab, but Antonio Taralba at MIT and CSAIL is the director on the MIT side. And we have a joint governance structure where we decide together what we're going to work on, and then those projects are executed together. And I think that's a, it's a really powerful model that, that hasn't been tried at this scale before. And where are you in the life cycle of that? How long have you been doing it? And, and do you have any kind of early results or to, yep. to share? Like, what are some projects? Right. So we have a portfolio of almost 50 projects that are running. Uh, and again, all of these are, are joint between uh, IBM researchers and, and MIT faculty. And the, the longest running of those projects have been running for about a year. So it's still very early days. Um, but we're already, uh, you know, publishing in the top conferences. Uh, so uh, on that neurosymbolic theme that I mentioned earlier, where we're building hybrid systems that combine the strengths of neural networks with the, strength, the strengths of symbolic AI systems, uh, our, uh, some of our researchers here at IBM, together with Josh Tenenbaum's lab at MIT, have built some of the first, you know, very exciting examples of neurosymbolic hybrid systems. Uh, and we've had recent papers in NeurIPS, which is, you know, pretty much the, the top conference today in, in AI, and also in, in iClear, which is the next one, uh, spotlight papers where we're sort of starting to explore, you know, building, building those little rockets rather, you know, rather than climbing the, the tree or climbing the mountain, you know, building those, those little simple systems that are starting to give us little glimpses of what the future might hold. So that's been uh, very exciting. Um, we have work in causal inference. So we think that causality is, is very important. That's something that's missing from today's AI, really understanding cause and effect and not just correlation. Uh, so we have an, a number of people working on projects in that area. We also have projects, uh, you know, our, our portfolio is relatively broad. We have projects even also in, in the phys what we call the physics of AI. So asking how new kinds of computing hardware might influence the progress of AI. So things like analog computing, how do we build non-digital systems that can, that can help accelerate AI, you know, potentially dramatically decreasing the power it takes to run today's AI algorithms. And also quantum. So we have, we have projects we're working with uh, Peter Shore, for instance, at MIT of, of Shore's algorithm fame, who uh, is helping us think about how might quantum and AI interact with each other. I think it, nobody really knows the answer to that question, but quantum computing is fundamentally new, a fundamentally different way of doing computing. And it's anybody's guess how these two fields will interact with each other. Um, so you know, that gives you a little bit of a sense of the breadth and the long range thinking that we're doing uh, at, at this lab. And how do you decide kind of what to do? I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of like there's a great frontier, you know, you're, you're, you're in the early 19th century heading west uh, across the United States and, you know, there's, you can go any direction as far as you want. How do you decide what to do? 
that's a that's a fantastic question and that 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 is the hard part of this job that's the hard and it's also the fun part of this job right uh we can you know mit has an incredible breadth of activity going on and you know we at, at ibm research have an incredible breadth of activity uh, in many ways I, I think it's as much a question of what shouldn't we do like what, what should we decide not to do uh, and one thing we decided not to do very early on was even though you might think that IBM would be very focused on applications, um, you know, we're, we're a company, we, you know, we serve enterprise, uh, surely we must be interested in, in applications. And we are interested in applications. I mean, we're not a philanthropy. We're, we're trying to serve our customers, help them do their work better. But for this tool, you know, the, this tool that we have in our, in, our, in our tool chest, the MIT IBM lab, we wanted to ask, you know, really focus and say, we're not going to do applications research. We're going to do fundamental AI research. So we really need to drive towards things that will change how we do AI, not simply to apply AI to existing, existing problems. And, you know, our, our portfolio, so we have, we have 50 projects about uh, right now. The other key piece of, of that sort of from a structural level is we don't decide one course and then just stay on it, you know, slavishly. So we didn't just say, okay, 10 year, you know, it's a, it's a quarter billion dollars over 10 years go. Uh, it's really a rolling portfolio. So we, we are constantly curating. We bring on new exploratory projects every year. So we've designed our program so that we can always bring in new projects and then if those projects are doing well and we feel like we're actually making a difference, we can continue those projects arbitrarily long. But we think that having that dynamic lifeblood where we're constantly working with different parts of MIT, whoever has the best ideas uh, at any given moment, that's where we're going to go. You know, I'm really intrigued by transfer learning because it seems to me you can take a toddler and show them four pictures of a cat and not only... Well, they see, you know, recognize cats, but if they see a minx cat, you know, one of those without a tail, they'll say, look, there's a cat without a tail, even though they'd never been told there was something like a cat without a tail. Like that wasn't even a real category. Likewise, when I come across bots that purport to be, you know, kind of like Turing test sort of type your question in them, I ask, what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? And I've never had a single one answer that question correctly. And both of those seem to be kind of part of what you were talking about earlier, that common sense, that model of the world. Um, is that the kind, is that the level? I'm trying to get, grasp the level of problem you're looking at. Because at, at a high level, it's how do humans learn? At a low level is... How do you tell the difference between a dog and a cat? And then there's every level between it. So is that problem of how does transfer learning work or how do we generalize the world or how do children uh, learn with so little samples? Is that the kind of granularity of the problems you're thinking about or is that too, are those too broad or too narrow? No, no, that, that's exactly where I think AI needs to go, right? So this, this notion, of, like, just think about all the, so the, there's, there's transfer learning, you know, tr transfer learning is, is, is absolutely the, 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 right, um, the right framing, but sometimes it gets, it, sometimes it implies a narrowness, like how do we, um, you know, transfer from handwritten digits to digits on street signs or something like that. Um, and, and, that, and that's fine. There's some work going on that's, that's very good and, and very helpful in that area. We do some of that work. We had a paper in NeurIPS um, you know, specifically on that issue of transfer learning. But I, I think where we're going or where we need to go is much more about structure and common sense, right? Like how do we build a system that when it sees the cat 
doesn't just see a collection of texture of fur and stuff and say, okay, well, statistically, it's probably a cat. Um, you know, for instance, uh, one thing I, 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 I sometimes show in talks I give, uh, if you take, uh, there's a picture, there's a piece of art in, in MoMA uh, called uh, Le Déjeuner uh, en Fureur, which is, you know, luncheon in fur. It's a, it's a fur-covered teacup, saucer, and spoon. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a little bit of an unsettling image. Um, if you show that to many of today's state-of-the-art, supposedly superhuman, uh, you know, image recognition systems, uh, they'll tell you it's a teddy bear. Or, or something similar, right? So the image is clearly not a teddy bear. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the least teddy bear image uh, you could possibly imagine. What, what's happening is the, the, the neural network is, is sort of seeing the textures and, you know, it, the closest thing it sees in the, you know, it's seen in its data set before was, was a teddy bear. So kind of uh, that's, what it, that's what it settles on. But as you say, what we do is we look at the structure of the thing. We say, okay, that's an object. It's shaped like this. It's weird. It's, it's nothing like anything we've ever seen before. You know, you know, cat or a dog, you know, you can see a statue of a cat or a dog. It could be metallic and it could be pink and polka dotted. It, you don't have to see, have seen something like that before for you to be able to reason about the shape of the object, the material properties of the object, configuration of its parts. Um, that flexibility, that, that extraction of real structure and then bringing to bear all kinds of knowledge, I think that's a big part of the magic of what, you know, to use the word magic again, uh, that's a big part of the magic of how we think that's different from how today's narrow AI systems, you know, deep learning, you know, today's deep learning systems work. So we're very much interested in how do you extract that structure and then critically be able to reason about that structure. And I think this, this notion, we like to separate in our own internal discussions between learning and reasoning. So, you know, learning is, is extracting that statistical structure, but then being able to flexibly reason over it, to be able to draw connections or, or, or work in settings that you haven't seen before. I think that's a big part of the nut that we're trying to crack within this lab. And I haven't heard you mention anything about embodying it. Do you think that intelligence needs to be embodied in, in some form that kind of gives it this feedback loop where it can create a model of the world or can it all be done kind of uh, in memory alone? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think it's anybody's guess. I mean, we're not working heavily in the area of robotics right now and actual physical robotics, but we do have projects that work heavily in simulation. And, and I do think, uh, you know, having the ability to act on the world uh, you know, what, one we, we do also interact quite a bit with with psychologists who who um, you know study how children uh, learn and how how they interact in the world. And I think that's a really interesting and valuable perspective because uh, there is quite a bit of active learning that goes on. You know, active perception. Uh, you know, where where you know that you move the object and you can infer properties about it. So that that absolutely in, sim, in simulation at least that's absolutely something that we are very interested in working on. I do think, and of course, I wrote a book about whether computers can become conscious, so I'm, I'm deeply interested in the question, but I do think that consciousness, it gives us a few powers that it's hard to see their analog in computers, and one is that, is that we can kind of change focus, right? You can look at part of the image and kind of think, oh, maybe up there, and you know, we can kind of, of yeah, I, I guess change focus. And the other thing, I, I'm sure you're familiar being a neuro, neuroscientist with the whole um, range of experiments where you show uh, a little kid, uh, you take an object and you put it in a drawer. And then 
uh, and the kid and their, their dad are in the room. They see it go in the drawer. And then where's the object that's in the drawer? But there's an age at which the, the object can be in the, in, the, in the drawer, but the dad didn't see it. And you could ask the kid, where does your dad think the object is? And the child is able to put themselves in the dad's, at, at some age, put themselves in the dad's place and say, well, he didn't see it get put in the drawer. So he probably thinks it's still wherever. Uh, and so that being able to kind of shift focus also seems to be something that I can imagine what somebody else is thinking because, because I have a I have a concept of them as a self, as an entity. Yeah. Um, and so it's, I've always thought in the kind of in the back of my head, you at least, I think both of those can kind of be faked in code, but that, that maybe do you, I, I guess all this is building up. Do you think there are going to be some tricks we learn some like aha moments where we make these quantum advances or do you think it's a long slog of these tiny incremental, you know, we slightly get better, slightly get better, slightly get better. Or is there going to be some apple fall on somebody's head moment where we suddenly, aha, we get it and we, we can shoot way ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, the history of science has been one of punctuated equilibrium, right? Like we, we make rapid advances and then we, we, we sort of slow down and sometimes, you know, we often go in the wrong direction, uh, you know, and, and hist historians of science have, have written about this again and again, you know, the people studied phlogiston, uh, you know, for, for, you know, PhD theses were written about phlogiston, you know, the material that comes out when you burn something. And it turns out that that was all wrong. You know, it turns out, you know, this was oxidation and burning. And, you know, finally, it, when we understood that, then progress moved very quickly. Uh, you know, we're going to have that in AI too, right? I mean, we're going to, you know, and maybe we're even, you know, making incremental progress in the wrong direction now because, you know, we, we've sort of made that punctuated leap and now we're sort of stirring around <coughs> until we find our next punctuated leap. I think the things you're talking about, uh, so like the idea of, it's called theory of mind, where you uh, understand, you have a model of what other agents think. I think that, you know, I, I think the, the part for me that feels like we're driving towards is it's really about modeling the world. And that you can model the world in, in sort of a, a very near-term sense of, you know, what's, you know how, how is the object going to look a moment from now? Or if I push something, how will it move? And I think if we take that idea of building models in the world that let us predict what's going to happen next, I think that naturally takes us to a place where we start to, to you know, build models of people too. We build models of other agents to predict how they're going to react in different situations, how, how they're going to behave given what they know based on what we've observed of them knowing. I think that that modeling framework, uh, I think, is really going to be, you know, the guiding light for a lot of, of research and how the, how the progress moves then. Uh, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to have insights uh, that are going to drive us. We're going to find new techniques that drive us. And it's going to be very hard to predict. And, and I think progress is going to be choppy. But I feel like that framing where we're really just asking, how do we build models of the world that are useful, that let us plan what to do next to, to achieve goals? I think that's going to, for at least the next 10 years, I think that's going to be really a huge principle in the progress of AI. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much. If, if people want to keep up with what y'all are doing, what's the best way to do that? Well, so you can go to our website, uh, so mitibm.mit.edu. Uh, and, uh, of course, we're, we're, pu we're publishing a lot, and we'll be posting all of our work 
there, and uh, and we're we're very excited to share and interact with the community uh, at large. And what about you personally? Do you write? Do you give talks? Do you have a Twitter account? How can people keep up with you? Yep. Uh, so, so I, I, I do, I do talk and I occasionally blog, but I, but I am on Twitter. My, my Twitter handle is Neurobongo. Uh, and you've, you're of course welcome to follow me there. All right. It's been fascinating. Thank you, David. Thank you. As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm.